Hi, and welcome to the Unveiled Podcast, where we discuss all things related to women to help us think Christianly in every area of our life. My name is Sandy, and I'm here with Susie. We both have a passion to bring gospel reform to womanhood, to families, and to all of life. I have a background in music and education, and Susie's training is in biblical counseling, theology, and ministry to women. We're friends, and we have served together at our local church for 22 years. It's the Christmas season. Merry Christmas to our listeners, and Merry Christmas to you, Susie. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's um, it's a fitting time to do this episode, and we're calling it Christ is King. And so, Susie, we, we call ourselves Christians, but what does it actually mean to call yourself a Christian? Well, a Christian is someone who has been born again. And to be born again, you have to believe that you are a sinner. You have to believe that you have rebelled against God's rule and there is nothing that you can do to make it right. But God loves you and sent Jesus, his son, to live a perfect life in your place. And Jesus took that punishment so that you didn't have to. It's a punishment that you deserve. And uh, we have to recognize that he was brutally crucified on a cross. But he won the victory over sin and death by rising from the dead. And then when we recognize that, God offers us a free gift. He offers us faith to believe in that. And all we have to do is repent of our sins and trust that Jesus really is who he says he is and did what he says he did. And then the moment that we accept that gift, we are born again. It really is an amazing thing. We are born again because we are now new creations. We are no longer dead in our sins, but we're made alive in Christ Jesus. And this means that we now have the capacity to understand spiritual things. It means that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. And not only do we want to live righteously, we have the power to live righteously. Uh, the reality is we do still wrestle with fleshly desires. We will still sin, but because we are new creations, we have the Holy Spirit that lives in us and he convicts us of our sins that when we're convicted, we can repent and once again be restored. And this is just a beautiful gift to us. Those who are truly born again will feel conviction when they're confronted with sin and they will repent. And those who are truly born again will never lose their salvation. They belong to the family of God. They are followers of Jesus Christ, meaning they truly do follow him and live for him and make him known. And they are children of God. And that is just a most beautiful gift we can ever imagine. So that's what it means to be a Christian. Amen. Amen. The, the best gift, really. Um, so Susie, you know, in Canada, um, we're run by a government and there's different parties and um, we have a monarchy, um, but King Charles doesn't really um, make the rules here. We're not used to being ruled by a king or a queen. Uh, and, but it says in Revelation 19, 16, Jesus is given the title, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what does it mean when we say that Christ is King? 
Yeah, you're right. We aren't ruled by a king or queen. And in fact, I would say most people reject the idea of being ruled by anybody. They want to be rulers of their own lives. But as Christians, yes, we do declare Jesus to be king of kings and lord of lords. And that means if he is king, if he he really is, if we really believe that, that means he's ruler of his kingdom. And we as Christians, we are his citizens. We're obligated to obey him in everything. And not only that, we, we worship him. We give him glory and honor because we know that he is worthy and that there is no one like him, that he is above all others. You see, we want to represent him. And that's what citizens do for their king. They represent the king. And in order to represent him, we must worship him. Psalm 135, 15 to 18 has an amazing uh, message. And it says, um, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And this passage reminds us that we become what we worship. You see, if we trust in silver and gold, we become hardened like they are. But if we trust in Jesus, we will become more like him. And this is also stated in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where we are told that if we behold him, we will become like him. Uh, 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. We want to become like him, and that's part of allowing him to be king of our lives. We no longer rule our own lives. We don't make our own plans. There is no such thing as the all too common statement that says, you do you. No, we do what God commands, and we live in order to make him known and to bring him glory. It's It really is all about him if we recognize that he is king, and we actually believe it, and we actually live it. You see, we love because he first loved us. The world tells us that love is all about affirming people and uh, affirming whatever choice they make. But that's not what our king says. Affirmation does not equal love. God equals love. And therefore, we love like he loves. We love what is holy because he is holy and there is no love in that which is not holy and so we can't just affirm whatever our friends want us to just to make them feel loved in fact that's one of the most unloving things we can do no we want to represent god in his love and god is righteous and so even in our love we will point people to righteousness and so in everything if he is king we we live like him and we represent him and we do what he says and what he does because he is ruler of our lives not we ourselves and not the people that we're trying to please we are his citizens and therefore we should live like him and for him i really like what you said about becoming like idols, becoming the gold and the silver. And it makes me think of um, in Ezekiel where it talks about this heart of stone. Mm. He'll replace it and give you a heart of flesh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Um, yeah, so Christ is king has sort of become a new phrase, popular phrase. Celebrities are seeing it. You can see it on T-shirts. 
uh, we're hearing it more and more and it sounds really good, but is it something that we are really living out? Mm, That's a challenging question. It certainly is much easier said than done. Just like the phrase, it's all for God's glory. Mm -hmm. We're very familiar with those phrases and yet, is it really? Do we really live for God's glory or do we live for our own glory? And is he really king or is he only king when it suits us? I've seen it so many times when Christians, uh, they love the bold and courageous leader, particularly during the last several years. They loved those leaders that were fighting for their rights. But I think they they had it wrong. They were they were fighting for personal rights, many of them, mm-hmm. but they weren't really fighting for the sovereignty of God. And so, people who supported leaders that were being bold and courageous, fighting for the sovereignty of God, they didn't necessarily continue to follow those leaders or respect those leaders when all of a sudden it started to point back at them when the courage and the boldness began confronting their own personal sin. And I think that's where we have to really take time to ponder. Do we really love God's rule? Do we really want him to be king? Or do we only long for it and want it when it's about others? And when it's pointing at other people's sin and calling other people out, uh, then we love the fact that God is king. But what about our own lives? Are we really willing to surrender to him? And I think there's some things, especially as women, where we we really need to consider, are we really making him king? Has he really become king of kings and lord of lords in our lives? Or is it just a nice saying? There's a few things that I uh, thought about as I was thinking about it. And it's in the concept of anxiety and worry, which I think is a very common part of a woman's life. We get anxious and we get worried and all too often we just attribute it to being women who who have deep feelings and care a lot. But worry is a lack of faith in God, in a God who is all sufficient. He is all powerful. He is all God. And if he really is king of our lives, we will cast our cares on him and we will trust him and we will worship him when those cares come our way. You see, uh, we will all face anxiety and worry, but what do we do with it? Do we just get stuck in our anxiety? Do we get frightened? Do we get um, just kind of frozen in our own fears Or do we turn to him? Do we run to him and trust him no matter what? Another area is bitterness. And once again, um, we are women who feel deeply and we love deeply. And so we can easily be hurt. And when we are hurt, that can easily turn into bitterness. But if we are bitter, we haven't truly made him king of our lives. If we really understand how much he's forgiven us, then we also need to extend that grace to others. Um, if he is king, then we must trust him to be the final judge. We must trust him to be able to heal our hurts and try, instead of trying to take it into our own hands. And really, that's what bitterness is all about. It's trying to take bitterness and revenge into our own hands. Another one is gossip and slander. 
And I think the reason why many women gossip and slander is because they actually have a very low self uh, worth and they uh, think that by gossiping and slandering others, they'll feel better about themselves. But if he is truly king, then we will be satisfied in who God has called us to be. And we won't resort to making others look bad to make ourselves look better because we already know we have the righteousness of God in our lives. It's not something that we have earned. It's not something we deserve, but we have it because of who Christ is and what he's done for us. And we'll be satisfied with that. And we won't need to resort to gossip and slander. Another one is doing things for personal gain or for personal praise. If he really is king, We will be content to bring him glory and we won't seek it for ourselves. So if you find yourself feeling disappointed or discouraged or defeated because you didn't get that word of affirmation or you didn't get noticed, maybe it's a sign that he really isn't king. Another one is withholding encouragement. So maybe we don't want to encourage another person because we don't want that person to get praise. If God really is king of our lives, then we will encourage others and we will bless them in the Lord because it's not about us. We want to praise God and encourage others and in love on others. Another very common one is feeling like the victim. And this is so common in our world. They, they really thrive on this victim mentality and blaming everybody else for, um, the difficult life that we have. And certainly as Christians, we don't have to deny that we've been hurt, but we certainly shouldn't live as a victim either. Because if he truly is king, we will trust that he can redeem our story. And we're not going to get stuck in self-pity and blame and uh, that victimization and always feeling down on ourselves and uh, justifying the behaviors of victims rather than actually calling them out for their own sin. No, feeling like a victim is not calling him king. And so we need to choose to trust him and see the good in what he is doing rather than just living out that victim mentality. And then the last one I was going to mention, I'm sure there's many others we could talk about, but defensiveness. As women, we can be so defensive, right? And um deny the actual truth of things. But if he is king, we will own up to our own sin and we will repent when we're confronted with that or when we're convicted in our own lives. Um, And then, of course, if you are falsely accused, which can happen as well, we're not going to get defensive about it. Rather, we're going to trust God to reveal the truth And only speak what is redemptive, right? There might be a time to say, actually, Mm. that's not true. This is what the truth is. And there's other times when we should just be be quiet and let God uh, work it out for us. But defensiveness is not showing others that Christ really is king of our lives. Mm. Thanks, Susie. So saying Christ is king is giving authority and lordship to God. And so what does this look like as far as authority in the family structure, in the workplace, as citizens of Canada, and also within our church. Yeah, good. God has put laws in place. He has put rulers in place, and those are for our protection. They are in order to keep 
order in this world, to sustain life. And we need to recognize that all rulers are under God and they are called to represent the laws of God. And in so much as they do this, we are called to obey them. They are not to be dictators, but they are to be sacrificial and just. And that means that different leaders have different spheres of authority. You see, the things that you mentioned already, like the family has certain authorities. Uh, children have, um, or, or parents have, you know, authority over their children in, in certain areas. And a boss has a certain authority over his employees. And the government has certain authority over its citizens. But that doesn't mean that they have all authority over every area and we have to recognize that there's different spheres that God has has ordained and so when it comes to the family God has called husbands to love their wives and to lead their wives as Christ does the church not for their own selfish gain but for their protection and and to make them more holy like Christ is holy and so that's his his authority that's his his sphere of influence and as wives, that means we are called to submit to our husbands as to Christ in so much as they are leading and protecting us for the glory of God and for uh, a representation of what Christ has done for the church. And certainly there's husbands that can become dictators and that is not right that's not godly they are to represent christ in their leadership and then when it comes to children children are called to honor their parents in the lord and in in so much as their mother and their father are are seeking to represent christ and of course we have to recognize that none of them will ever represent him perfectly first of all they're not god but secondly they are still living in a fallen world and wrestling with their own um sinfulness they're not yet fully sanctified and so that doesn't mean uh children have an excuse not to obey just because their parents aren't perfect yet but in so much as their parents are seeking to honor the lord in their authority children are called to honor their parents and this goes for work right we as employees are to work hard to show respect to our employers to go above and beyond to be people of integrity but we are not to compromise in order to keep our jobs. And we see that so many times because many employers are representing what the government has put in place. And many of those laws are actually not biblical laws. And yet uh, employees then are put in this situation where they have to choose. Are they going to obey their employer? Are they going to obey God? And so, yes, in most cases, we are to respect, have great respect and work hard and honor our employers. But if they are asking us to lie, then we should refuse that. It actually reminds me, this was many years ago when I was working for a, um, a company. It was a um, like a home party kind of a place. And I worked in the office and there was a certain situation. I was a customer service representative where they wanted me to lie to the customers. And I did not feel comfortable with that. And so I approached my boss and I talked to her about it. And we came up with a compromise that would still help her to achieve her purposes, but it didn't put me in a position where I had to lie. And I don't even remember all the details, but I remember just having a really strong conviction about that. And so I took action and I talked to her about it and she was willing to um, 
help me come up with a, a solution that she would still be able to accomplish what she wanted to accomplish, but I didn't have to be in a position where I would lie. And I think we have to be willing to do that. Um, and on occasion, that might mean that you will lose your job. And if that's the case, we have to be willing to do that. But I've actually also really noticed that many times our employers actually honor people who are willing to talk about it. If you're a hardworking employee and you are willing to go above and beyond, if you have this rare situation where you're put in a position where you feel like you have to compromise your faith and you talk to your employer about it, they're actually often willing to work with you. Not always. We we all do know people who have actually lost their jobs. And hey, that that's hard. I'm, I'm not going to deny that. I, I can only imagine that that must be really, really super difficult, especially if you're the main breadwinner of the home and you're like, wow, like how am I going to pr- provide for my family? And we saw people going through that over the last several years. And that was would not have been an easy decision. And only a decision that people could make if they really have a strong trust in the Lord to ultimately be their, their provider. Um, but in so many cases, we can actually have a great influence in our place of work if we're just willing to speak up. And so we should be willing to do that with the knowledge that, hey, yeah, maybe we will lose our job, but in the end, I'm going to choose Christ over my employer. And then, of course, as Canadian citizens, I also want to just say, hey, we we should submit to the laws of the land unless they oppose God's law, right? Mm -hmm. And we're not anti-government. We're not anti-authority. I think authority is a very good thing, but not if it... uh, calls us to oppose God's law. We don't just submit to everything that the government says if it's actually hindering what God is trying to accomplish. In fact, we live in such a, an anti-life culture. There's so many things that we should be opposing. But in the end, if we're able to, if it doesn't oppose God's law, we should be law-abiding citizens. And then, of course, there's the church. And uh, the church has... Uh, been given qualified elders that are called to rule well. And I just want to finish with this one because I think it's such a great example, really, when we see how elders are to rule in the church. It really gives us a beautiful uh, description of how all leaders, all rulers should rule. And one of them is found in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 20. And this is what it says. It says that the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may, so that the rest may stand in fear. And so here it, it just describes that an elder is to rule well and that if he rules well, we should actually honor him. Uh, we shouldn't hinder what God has called him to do. But of course, if he, he sins and there's evidence and you have two or three witnesses that can give evidence, Hey, no ruler is above uh, rebuke, and he should be rebuked. But also, we see in First Timothy or First Peter five verses one to three another um, 
description of how elders should rule. And it says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So part of the role of an elder is to be a shepherd. And we know that shepherds take care of their sheep. They sacrifice for their sheep. They protect, they they help them when they are sick. They provide food and safety and shelter for their sheep. And that's just a beautiful description of how elders should lead the flock of God. And it also says exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. And so to to lead, they aren't to do it because they have to, but they should because they want to and are willing to do this. Uh, it says, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So once again, it's not about gain, gaining anything for yourselves, but it's because we're eager to serve God. And then it also continues saying, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So those are descriptions of how an elder is to rule. But I, I think there's so much truth here and a good reminder of how rulers should rule. It is never for selfish gain. It is not because we have to. It isn't because um, they're they're trying to be domineering or dictators. No, rulers are to be examples and they're to be loving and to shepherd those under their care. And I think it's just um, a beautiful way to think about leadership and ruling and have a positive view of what leaders should be like. And the church should be a model, an example of godly, selfless, and protective rule. And I'm so thankful for the leaders, the elders in our church who do that well. And I want to commend them. I, I, I respect them. They're a unified body of leaders that really do seek the Lord and seek to represent him and they're a model of what godly leaders should be like. They are loving leaders who care for their people. And and that's who God is. God cares for his people. And he is uh, he, he does it in a loving way, not to domineer, not to be a dictator. But he knows what's best for us. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to protect us and to bring himself glory. And as leaders, they should do the same. And that means that we, the people, should submit to that rule. We we need to change things. In our society, uh, authority has almost become like a swear word. And mm. people just reject authority. And they're unwilling to submit to it. And even children, young children are told, you don't have to listen to your parents. or You don't have to tell your parents about this. Because our world is anti-authority. But we as Christians should never be anti-authority. Authority is God's design to maintain order, to provide protection, and to bring him glory. Um, but at the same time, then, we have to recognize if if we aren't willing to submit to authority, we also shouldn't blame authority when we aren't protected because our authorities, our laws are given to us pr- to protect us. And so sometimes we see... Uh, situations kind of like maybe the unwed mother might say, why did God allow me to get pregnant? Well, getting pregnant is the direct result of having sex. And if you're going to have sex, you have to recognize that you could get pregnant. It's not God's fault. 
Um, and so if we step outside of authority, we cannot expect to be protected. At the same time, I do want to say that absolutely 100% not all suffering is a result of sin. There is not always a direct answer to why we suffer. But even then, we can find hope that Christ suffered too, and he understands us completely. And I just thought of a couple of verses that help us to understand that um, even when we do suffer, we have a king, we have a high priest who understands us. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says this, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And so in our suffering, we can remember that he is the great king, the great high priest who is willing to help us. And um, Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And so it's just a reminder that Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who has authority over our lives, who who loves us and is our protector, he also understands when we suffer because he himself suffered in in ways that we can't even imagine and so when we are suffering he understands us he's not so far removed from us just because he is king of kings and lord of lords that he's not willing to come down and to meet us in our suffering and to uh, encourage us and to support us and to uplift us and to understand us and to give us that mercy and grace that we need at the proper time. So it's just a beautiful reminder that yes, he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are expected to obey him. And um, many times we will be protected when we obey him. But when we do suffer, he also understands and he is with us and offers mm. us mercy and grace. Mm-hmm. And we can find blessing in the suffering if we are suffering mm-hmm. for Christ. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thanks, Susie. Um, the past few years, we've seen different institutions claim authority where perhaps it isn't granted. Uh, I'm actually thankful for the opportunities that this has given us to be able to share the gospel and to examine proper biblical authority. Opportunities like we've never seen in our lifetime before. And I get that in the sense um, when someone claims authority inappropriately, our back goes up. But on the other hand, sometimes when the church practices proper biblical authority over God's people, it doesn't always end well. What do you think is in our nature that when people are challenged in their spiritual lives, some leave the church before attempting to work it out? Yeah, well, the reality is um, I think... We all love authority when it's directed at other people, Hmm. but it's hard when it's directed at ourselves, right? And, um, and yeah, you're right. We, we have experienced some very godless leadership over the last 
few years. And these godless leaders, they try to take the place of God and they treat people more like property, property that they own rather than human beings who are created in the image and likeness of God. They try to claim ultimate authority over everything. And we've experienced that, right? Including um, things like mandating, mandating what people inject into their bodies and mandating where and when people can go and how many people you can gather with. Like even now, just a few years later, it almost seems unreal, Hmm. the things that happened. And yet those things actually did happen. And people felt very dehumanized. They felt very vulnerable and very fearful. And as Christians, we, we have to oppose those inhumane forms of authority. And we, we want to give people hope during those times. We don't want to just come alongside them and, and get stuck in their inhumanity and in their defeat and in their bitterness and hopelessness. No, we want to offer them hope, right? And, and that's where we have to be careful because the people that have been dehumanized are very likely people who could easily become hateful and Mm. vengeful and bitter towards government, but all types of authority. Mm -hmm. And, And we don't want to fall into that trap, but we do want to offer them hope and remind them that God loves them and that God did create them to be, you know, image bearers, to be like him and that he has a plan and a purpose for them, that they are valuable and they're called to be in relationship with him. And we have this opportunity to provide them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only answer is the gospel. And we need to remind them that they aren't going to find hope in themselves, no matter how many self-help type of slogans they try to look for or are told. They're not going to find hope by being anti-authoritarian, but they will find hope by finding Jesus. And uh, we need to remember this and continue to share the gospel of Jesus to a hurting world. And then when it comes to the church, and we all, none of us are exempt from this, we all have to be willing to receive rebuke. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that rebuke comes like in a in a group setting, right? Being preached on a Sunday morning or in a, in a small group teaching, whatever it might be. It's not directed at just one person, but it's God's word being taught. But if we ourselves are struggling with that sin, we might feel like it's a personal mm-hmm. attack. Yep. It's not a personal attack. It's the Spirit of God convicting us, right? And so we have to be willing to receive that. And then there's other times when maybe it is a personal accusation. There is a, a face-to-face, one-on-one confrontation when someone is confronting you with maybe an attitude or an action And once again, we all have to be willing to receive it, not just champion it when it's happening to other people, but we ourselves have to be willing to receive it. And that can be hard, Mm -hmm. right? And it it means that we have to be willing to pursue relationships and to have conversations and to process things together. It's not always just like a a one-time conversation. Sometimes it takes time. And if we truly want to represent the gospel, I think we have to give one another that time and be willing to talk about things and not just up and leave and not discuss or just make accusations and then 
dart out of there, right? No, mm. if we really champion bold teaching that is unapologetic in nature, which our church, it's one of our values. Mm-hmm. Um, if we really champion it, we have to also champion it in our own lives. And I recognize that's hard. Hey, yep. I, I've had to face confrontation myself and it's not easy. And, and hey, maybe, maybe sometimes I've been falsely accused, but other times it's it's true and I need to take time to, to think about that. And we all do. Yeah. None of us are above that. Mm-hmm. And I like how you said, take time to think about it, mm. not react right away. Yeah. Thank you, Susie. C.S. Lewis has this beautiful quote. It says, if we find ourselves with the desire, nothing in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. God has created us with a longing for something more than the seen world. We often fill it with something like maybe for little kids, it's make-believe. And when we get older, we search for the true meaning of life. What happens when we die? What are some of the things that are acting as temporary replicas to the real satisfaction of walking with Jesus and the promise that we have of eternity? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, that is a fantastic quote. And I'm going to repeat it because I think it needs to be um, something we think about. We need to let it sink in. And it's if we find ourselves with a desire nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Isn't that so true? Mm-hmm. We were made to be in relationship with Jesus. We were designed for eternity. And um, we are so easily unsatisfied. We we look for things in this world. We think that these temporary things that we can feel, see, and touch will satisfy us for eternity. And it, and they just don't. Mm-hmm. They always fail us. And so I just want to take a moment. Our next study starting in January for our Women's Bible Study here at Harvest is going to be in the book of Jeremiah. And I'm super excited about it. It's actually uh, called Satisfied. That's the mm-hmm. title of our, our study. And it comes from Jeremiah 31 verse 13. 13 or 14, I I think it's verse 14. I I didn't write it down here. It says, I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, Mm -hmm. declares the Lord. And it's in God's goodness that we will find ultimate satisfaction. It's not in anything this world can provide. And so we just need to continue to think on that. The book of Jeremiah calls out the people for running to false gods and trying to find refreshment and satisfaction in them when all along they have God who is like a fountain of living water, Mm -hmm. God who provides access, uh, eternal access Mm -hmm. and unending refreshment and protection and nourishment and forgiveness and love. It's unlimited Mm. in God. And yet they run to these false gods that can never satisfy for long. And we are so much like that. Uh, They were always left longing for more. And so are we. Because we continue to run to the things that are false. Mm. We are experts, as you said, in making replicas um, for ourselves, replicas of the true God. And so many times we think that, oh, that just happened in the Bible times or only Mm. other religions worship false gods. And um, they're the ones that make idols for themselves. But the truth is 
idolatry is a human problem. It's a problem in the Bible times, and it continues to be a problem now. Maybe we're just a little bit more sophisticated about it, uh, because I think deep down, all of humanity knows that there is more to life than the here and now. And in pursuit of finding the answers, we often resort to fantasy. And so I could speak about all sorts of idols of the heart. But actually, especially because it's Christmas, I just want to focus on fantasy for a little bit. Mm. And I think even Christians uh, often just aren't quite satisfied with the Bible or they aren't quite satisfied with the still perfect beautiful presence of God. Mm -hmm. They're looking for more. They're looking for something magical, something super experiential. Mm -hmm. And yes, the, the Christian life is full of experiences. I've experienced the presence of God in my life. But it's not always going to be exotic or um, it's not always going to feel like it's an out of the this world kind of an experience. And so we have to be very careful about that. And um, and both Christians and non-Christians, I think, are often looking for more. And they, they look for virtual relationships. And they look for virtual sex and virtual sports. And they, they run to romance novel, mo- novels and social media influencers. And I think it's because this world just doesn't seem quite like enough. Reality doesn't seem like it's, it's good enough. And then there's something else it's christmas and we just love santa claus now let me just say and explain i am absolutely not legalistic about santa i never prohibited santa from our family i never denied him i didn't mind reading books about santa i don't mind reading or watching a movie about santa but i also didn't portray santa as truth He was simply a fun story. And so I just encourage all of us to consider if we keep Santa as part of our Christmas celebration, let's just consider a few things, okay? Uh, First of all, it's not okay for us to lie to our kids. So if we are telling them that he is real and that he is the one that brings gifts, uh, not in a fun way, but in a convincing way where we're making our children believe that this is true, then we're lying to them and that's not okay. And if we think that our kids need Santa to be real, to make Christmas exciting, then we really don't understand how amazing the birth of Jesus Christ is. Mm. If the birth of Jesus Christ isn't exciting enough that you have to have to add Santa to make it exciting, it's probably a problem. Mm -hmm. And so we have to apply these same kind of questions to other fairy um, or other fantasies like and fairy tales like the Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, and there's probably some other fairy tales that I'm not even sure about or I'm not thinking about right now. But we have to consider those things. I think they can be fun stories. I have no problem with reading them as a storybook. But to try and convince our children that those are true, to rely on them to make Christian holidays exciting enough I think that's the problem so once again I just want to assure everybody I am not legalistic about this I think seeing Santa at the mall at Christmas or seeing watching the Christmas parade I think it's a fun thing Mm -hmm. I have no problem with that I enjoy watching a fun movie about Santa 
I remember doing watching a few of them when our kids were young. I I think it's fun. There's nothing wrong with it, and I don't have a problem with it. But I don't need Santa. Our family didn't need Santa to make Christmas more meaningful. And so I just encourage you to think about those things. And I actually wonder if some people hold on to things like Santa or the Tooth Fairy or the Easter Bunny because deep down they know that there is something beyond themselves, but they haven't actually discovered the God of the universe. And in fact, they have denied him. And in order to make a replica, they need something supernatural to experience. And so they uh, make a replica out of these make-believe characters and they try to convince themselves or at least for a while convince themselves and their children that they really are real. And it gives them that little bit of satisfaction um, that satisfies their curiosity about something other than this world but it doesn't actually give them any answers they actually are holding on to false replicas of a true god a true hope and it ends up leaving them hopeless with no hope for eternity but because they've captured a little bit of it a little little feeling of of the supernatural they think that that's all there is and that can be dangerous Let's remember that there is no hope, no out, no supernatural experience that is real apart from God. And so this Christmas, let's offer people true hope, not just let them settle for make-believe. I'm so glad that you talked about that today, Susie, just, just in time for Christmas. And I hope that the moms, the new moms, um, really consider, you know, are you including Santa and why? Why are you? Um, yeah, so thank you. It's good to talk about, think about. Um, so there is, there is an unseen realm that we sometimes forget about. We read in Ephesians, we just studied that today with our women's Bible study, that there is a spiritual world. And in Ephesians 12, 6, 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Can you explain to us how Jesus has already defeated Satan, the ruler of this world, and how Jesus is going to eternally defeat Satan as laid out in Scripture? Yes, actually, as I was um, studying that passage over this past week for our Bible study, I was reading in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, and I loved a quote that I read. It said, even though victory is sure, it has to be won through battle. Mm. And it was just such a great reminder that, yes, we know that the victory has ultimately been won when Christ died on the cross. But that doesn't mean that we aren't in a battle in our everyday lives and we have to be on guard we have to be prepared we have to be willing to fight we can't just sit back and watch life go before us and we can't just sit back and feel defeated when attacks come our way no we have to be armed and ready to stand firm and to fight battle to be protected and uh so 
So what does it mean that the victory is already sure? Well, Colossians 3, 13 to 15 says this. It says, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of a debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Mm. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And that means mm. that Christ won the victory because on the cross, he disarmed their power. He put them to open shame. He defeated death. He defeated sin so that we are no longer in bondage to that. We no longer have to be um, face eternal damnation. No, we are freed from that. We can be forgiven and they have no power over us. They can no longer win over us. My Bible, um, my study Bible described it this way. It said, on the cross, demonic powers were stripped of their power to accuse Christians before God. And so we can no longer be accused. You see, we deserve it, and yet we can't be accused. Satan will try to accuse us. He will try to defeat us. He will try to destroy us and remind us of all of our sins, and yet Christ already paid for it. He disarmed their accusations. And then my study Bible continued to say that the cross publicly reveals the failure of the Mm. demonic powers to defeat God's plan of salvation through Christ. And so when Satan tries to um, defeat you and try to remind you of how you have failed, you can remind him, no, the cross revealed that you actually failed, Satan. You have no power over me. You cannot stop the plan of salvation because Christ has already won. And we need to remind Satan and his his demons about that. Sadly, some Christians continue to live in fear of the demonic world and they live in fear of what Satan can do because Satan has deceived them into thinking that he is still all powerful and we need to remind him and remind ourselves that no, on the cross, their powers failed. They publicly were put to shame. They have no power over us. Christ has won. He is our victory, our Eternity is sure, and Satan has no power to stop it. Philippians 1 6 reminds us that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so that is our promise that God will carry it to completion. He will sanctify us. We will not lose. And then James uh, 1 2 to 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing and that's what we're all striving for right that day when we will be perfect and complete lacking in in nothing and that means that in the here and now we cannot lose lose hope we cannot give up we can't just sit back we have to be in the battle, we have to be fighting the battle. And as we do, that is producing steadfastness in us. And that steadfastness will make us perfect and complete in Jesus. Mm. And it's, um, yes, Jesus is in us. The Holy Spirit is working in us, giving us strength and encouragement and truth and conviction. And he is the one that has has given us new life and regenerated our, our dead souls 
But we work with him in sanctification and we stand firm. We put on the armor of God. We don't give up. We protect ourselves. We, we remember our faith. We remember truth and we remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we cling to that. We hold on to that. And, and we know that in the end, the victory is sure. We remember that Christ is King. He is the victorious King. He is kind and he is loving. He is just and he is impartial. He is worthy of all of our worship. And so I just want to remind all of us that this Christmas, let's really consider and make and live as if Christ really is King of our lives. And so I just encourage us to to really worship him. And that means go to church this Christmas and invite your unsaved family and friends to join you. Uh, it means put out that Christmas nativity so that you are reminded in your home that Christ came to be King and Savior of the world. And then read about the birth of Jesus. Get into your Bibles, read the Bible and, and reread the birth about the birth of Jesus. It means practice sharing the gospel and then actually do it. Share the gospel with an unsaved family or friend or coworker this Christmas season. And then as a family, yes, have gifts, have traditions, but make part of your tradition family worship. Worship God together. And then um, be welcoming and show the love of Christ to difficult family members. I would say probably all of us have family members that aren't saved and you're going to be gathering with them. Christmas is a great opportunity to shine the love of Jesus. Welcome them in the name of Jesus. And then be generous as God has been generous to you. And also take time to be still in the midst of the busyness. Model being the calm in the midst of the storm. And really let Christ be seen in you. Make all of these things your priority, your focus this Christmas season, and be intentional about it. Um, it's not about being fake. It's not about obeying rules, but be intentional. We, we have to make effort. We have to be purposeful in making him king. Because if we don't, certainly something else is going to take over and something else will become our king. And that is not what we want. We want Christ to be king in our lives so that his name will be glorified and that others also will make him king of their lives. Amen. He is worthy. He's your creator, and he is sovereign over all things. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus has paid the ultimate price for our sin in order to reconcile us to God the Father. So we ask, if you're listening today and you've not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, that would you not let another day go by without doing so? You are truly loved by Christ the King. What an awesome thought. I have a bonus question. Oh, you do? Oh, you do? <laughs> oh no. Again? Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. What could it be? Okay. Best gift and worst gift you've ever received. Okay. So <laughs> Best gift. I've gotten some good ones. Let me just think here quick. Mm -hmm. When I was a little girl, my favorite gift was uh, a Charmkin house. Did Charmkin. you ever know Charmkins? So like it was a little Polly Pocket, like a kind little? of like that. Oh. Yes, and I was just, I just loved this gift so much. These Charmkins, I think they smelled. They had a nice, oh, pretty smell to okay. them, and they just had, were these little people in this little house, and I just really loved that. And I know I've gotten some other good gifts. Let me just think here quick. 
and worst gift? I don't know. Off the top of my head, I can't remember. Yeah, Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) That's okay. So yeah, what about you, Sandy? Okay. Oh my goodness. I got a... (laughs) When I was uh, on staff at a a school, we had a re-gift exchange. So you had to take something that you already owned. And somebody gave me... This would be the worst gift, by the way, if I have to explain it. Um, The movie Sharknado... Still wrapped in plastic. They'd never watched it. I still have it on my on my shelf. I'm like ready to re-gift it. I've never watched it. Well, anyway, it's the next story. time the next time you have like a secret Santa, like yes. it's supposed to be like a gag gift. Yes. you can just. I'm totally bringing yeah. that Sharknado. <laughs> my kids keep asking, "Can we watch?" I'm like, "No, <laughs> it looks awful." <laughs> oh no! Yeah. Best gift. Oh, my twins were born right before Christmas. That's true. I would say that. Yeah. That would be my best gift. Yeah. Oh, sweet. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well, Merry Thanks, Christmas, guys. everyone. Merry Christmas. So we want to thank you for listening as we've discussed the Lordship of Christ, our Savior. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we ask that you would like and share it with others. And join us again as we seek to rebuild biblical womanhood from the foundation up. Mm-hmm.